Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 5 of God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see where we find any parallels with the Gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm podcaster and wannabe Klingon, Giles Goff. And I'm sauce maker and Ferengi bartender, Phil Coleman. Welcome back, Phil. It wasn't the same without you. Oh, <laughs> with Natalie here, I felt like my position as the one with the sexiest voice on the podcast was threatened. But it's now nice <laughs> to have things back to normal. And look, I know I'm from Warrington, but like, <laughs> it's not that I, bad. I love, I love, you're Sh- right. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Would you like some Klingon blood wine? There you go, lovey. And today we're going to be looking at Star Trek Deep Space Nine the third Star Trek series, and the only one thus far to be set predominantly on a space station rather than a ship. We'll be talking about the use of language in science versus faith, and how to tell if your church is a cult. It's worth noting that we're going to be talking about some elements related to spiritual abuse, so if this is a tough subject for you, feel free to skip this one. Anyway, for many years, Deep Space Nine has been my favourite Star Trek series so far, but nowadays we're so spoilt for choice it's hard to say. Phil, I know you're mainly a Star Wars guy, but (laughs) do you have a favourite Star Trek series? I do. I um, When I first moved to Manchester back in 2016, I got very much into watching uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, specifically. Yeah. I'd always quite liked um, a lot of the films, obviously the newer ones, because they're you know obviously part of my generation, and some of the older ones as well. Like I always liked Star Trek Generations. Like For me, that was boom! But um, <laughs> I really enjoyed TNG, just because I used to watch that uh, when I was in my really, really rubbish apartment when I first moved to Manchester. There was rats on the floor and stuff, and it'd just be me sat with my phone on charge next to me, watching episode after episode of The Next Generation after after working a late shift at a bar. It was really comforting. And I've always really, really enjoyed that show. It's my comfort watching, you know? Well, that's the great thing about TNG. It is a comfort show. To me, I associate it with my childhood, and it's just, it's wonderful. I think, for me, the limitations are, is that because it was a series set up for syndication, all the toys had to be put back in the box at the end of an episode. So, to an extent, that was somewhat limiting. The thing I enjoyed so much about Deep Space Nine was there were changes and there were consequences to what happened in it. Yeah, no, I know what you mean, and I can see that because there's obviously quite a lot of arcs that are multi-episode spanning kind of thing mm-hmm. in Deep Space Nine, whereas it's got more of a monster of the week or situation of the week format with TNG. Yeah. And there's something about that that just, I don't know, there's always a resolution at the end of it. You can watch any episode of it and sort of be clued up. There might be callbacks to other episodes, but you don't really need mm. to know. And it's quite nice. Yeah, but- this was one of the first TV series, I, re- I remember at least, that had that kind of story arc kind of a... a- format and that approach Mm. anyway let's kick off with phil's facts star trek deep space nine is an american science fiction television series created by rick berman and michael pillar set in the 24th century when earth is part of the united federation of planets its narrative is centered on the eponymous space station deep space nine located adjacent to a wormhole connecting federation territory to the gamma quadrant on the far side of the milky way galaxy so although we only rarely see it there is actually an atm in quark's bar and it dispenses the various types of currency used by major races visiting the station. Federation credits, Bajoran Letus, Cardassian Lex, and Ferengi Latinum. <laughs> One of those things that you just think, of course there's an ATM, it's a bar. <laughs> I had no idea about that, that is awesome. Because I've not really watched a lot of Deep Space Nine, mm-hmm. I'm going to be looking out for that when I eventually get hooked on it and binge it in like two weeks. <laughs> so, Absolutely. You know. Me and Claire have been... 
You know a woman loves you when she sits through the entirety of Deep Space Nine for you, you know? And you can tell that she doesn't really enjoy it that much and she doesn't like it as much as <laughs> TNG. But she's powered through because it means something so it means so much to you. That is true love right there. <laughs> so when Cole Meany was fitted for his Deep Space Nine uniform, he made two requests of the costume designers. Mm-hmm. He explained that unlike the officers, the non-commissioned Chief O'Brien was a working man. So he needed to be able to roll up his sleeves. And he mm. needed pockets for his tools. So the costume department altered his uniform accordingly. That's awesome. There's a talk about uh, Jonathan Frakes and Marina Sirtis, uh, Commander mm. Riker and Deanna Troy, going around the Enterprise uh, sets and looking at their costumes and like, they've got pockets. Why couldn't we have pockets? <laughs> it's like the whole thing with dresses that should have pockets. Because all dresses really should have pockets. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah, people, yeah. People got, carry, people got to carry stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know come I mean? on, lads. Patriarchy's had a good time. And, and listen, we all like a good handbag, but let's yeah, just the, have pockets. The patriarchy's had fun, but it's time to give everybody pockets, okay? <laughs> you know? <laughs> anyway, so Michael Dawn uh, did not want to reprise his role as Worf since oh, really? the daily makeup application was exhausting. Mm-hmm. And he was relieved to be able to move on. Dawn said that the salary was offered... Made him reconsider. <laughs> I'm just, and I'm I mean, just, I'm just picturing Iris Stephen Bear, the, the showrunner for him, and uh, it like stood outside Michael Dorn's house, and Dorney is is objecting as loudly as he can, but you just can't hear it over the sound of the money truck reversing back. <laughs> you know? Beep beep beep. <laughs> when Worf comes into that show, it really sort of steps up a notch. That's like when the Defiant turns up, when Worf's there, and when Cisco is bald and has his beard, that's when you know that she's just got real, you know? It's getting, it's getting pretty real. It's no longer fake. Absolutely. At all. So the jar of pills, in inverted commas, in Dr. Bashir's office were actually filled with M&Ms. In many instances during the early episodes, the level of the pills would change between shots because the crew members kept stealing them. The problem was solved by epoxying the lids in place. <laughs> Just glue them down. Yeah, I remember yeah. sort of doing a set tour when I was a kid in school. There was a Welsh TV soap called Round Around uh, filmed in, uh, in I acted on that. Yeah, of course you did. Everybody who knows me is extra on that at some point yeah, or another totally. because, because I dragged you on at some point. <laughs> I'm okay but, with that. I once got 40 quid for eating a bacon sandwich. It was belt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like TV extra basically sort of spread out my student loan during my, my years. But they told us that all the chocolates and everything had been injected with something so that it would make them last longer and also would be poisonous. And I have no idea whether that was true or not, but none of us touched any <laughs> of them. That's one way of stopping people from eating the eclairs, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Moving on. The character of Morn, played by Mark Allen Shepard, the Lurian bar patron who is always seen sitting in Quark's bar, was written as a nod to the character of Norm Peterson, played by George Wendt on Cheers from 1982. Mm -hmm. Morn is an anagram of Norm. And the mask worn by Shepard originally had no opening for the mouth. So makeup artist Michael Westmore gave him lips over the course of the series, just in case the character did need to speak. (laughs) Unfortunately... Morn never actually said one word during the entire run of the show, leading to a running gag where bar patrons, station crew members and civilian residents often mention that Morn is excessively talkative off screen (laughs) and never shuts up. Believe it or not, there's an episode called Who Mourns for Morn? It's literally like this this sort of story that Morn has, has supposedly died. And 
Quark is saying at one point, this chair, Morn's chair, must always be filled by somebody. We should do that in memory of Morn. And he gets a big bloke and gets him to sit down in it. And the big bloke is the fella that actually plays Morn, but just out of makeup. <laughs> That's excellent. I love that. Star Trek has always been really good to its extras because Colmini, as Chief O'Brien, was basically just meant to be an unnamed bridge officer. Michael Dorn playing Worf in encounter at Farpoint on TNG again wasn't meant to be much more than an extra just to show like how the enemies of yesterday could be the friends of today so yeah, of course we like shows that are good to their extras that's all I'm saying Star Trek's good yeah big fans yeah. and lastly Wolf 359 mentioned as the battle site between the Borg and the Federation where Cisco lost his wife is actually a real star that is seven and a half light years away from Earth okay like I say I grew up with Star Trek from from about 96 when I was 13 it's been part of my life ever since you know i know the crew complement of the defiant voyager the enterprise d and i can name every captain of the enterprise from the first one through to picard you know and this the problem is is that sometimes you don't strictly know what's an actual science thing and what is a star <laughs> trek thing so i found out like maybe only a few years ago that an m class planet a planet capable of sustaining human life that's not an actual classification that exists <laughs> in the real world no you know i can but you know, they're so convincing, you'd never bloody well yeah. know. So, like, you talk with your other geeky friends about an M class planet and it just enters the lexicon, you know? You don't, yeah, just say, oh, yeah. You don't realize yeah, it's that definitely that. an M class planet, that, mate. I've seen I've seen Voyager, I've seen Deep Space Nine. I know what I'm talking about. It's dead scientifically accurate, that. Transporter could therefore work given right amount of time and right engineer, I'm telling you. Mm. There's a brilliant bit where um, transporters wouldn't work in, in the real world because of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about, so you don't need oh, to yeah, explain Oh, yeah, probably. It. So... <laughs> so what they did was they they wrote in a thing they just made a line about uh the heisenberg compensators are out out of whack or something like that <laughs> sorry they, somebody rang did... up michael okuda the the technical supervisor on star trek tng and said how do the heisenberg compensators work and he responded with very well thank you <laughs> The Heisenberg Compensators is Star Trek's version of reversing the polarity in Doctor Who. You know what I mean? It's just a catch-all, yeah. I feel. It just sort of just like, well, how does this work? Oh, we'll just reverse the polarity. Oh, it works now. Great. Anyway, that's Definitely. me. I'm done. Awesome. Thank you very much. So for our guest this week is a returning guest from season one all the way back Ooh. in those in those days. Friend of the show and Star Trek expert, uh, Stefan Austin. I'll let him introduce himself. Uh, hi, my name's Stefan I am a big Star Trek fan um, and general sci-fi fan in general. I run a local game store in my hometown. Yeah, and that keeps me very busy. Yeah, Stefan, it is so good to have you on here. You are our Trek correspondent and mm -hmm. it's lovely to be talking to you again. Mm -hmm. Let's get straight to it. So, Deep Space Nine, how did that come about? Partway through the run of Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, it's doing really well, getting towards, I don't know, season five, season six, and the uh, Paramount are looking to uh, have a replacement show for Next Generation. They're thinking about that ending, but I also think they're looking at having another great success on their hands, and they want to sort of expand on that. So they approached Rick Berman um, about creating a new show, what can you do, what have you got, and... Rick Berman and Michael Piller get their heads together and work on the show that would become Deep Space Nine. And really, I think they wanted something that, that was going to overlap with Star Trek The Next Generation. So mm -hmm. they wanted something that was a little bit different, wasn't out on a ship, there was going to be 
based on a space station so they could sort of offer something else from what TNG was already doing week in week out the idea of like a fort frontier town as a local mm-hmm. sheriff you know dealing with different like you know outlaws or the frontier as such so they put it on a space station um, and they wanted a, they gave it the wormhole so they could sort of have lots of interesting people coming to yeah. see them and I think, you know, looking at when they developed it, they wanted to sort of make it a little bit easier um, to avoid some of the issues they'd had on TNG, writing for the drama for the characters, um, because on the Enterprise, everybody's Starfleet, everybody's getting on. Mm. So for conflict or drama, they've got to go, each week they've got to meet somebody new, they've got to sort of bring in somebody to bring that issue. That's because of uh, Roddenberry's rule, wasn't it? Yeah. He said that he said that 24th century man would have no conflict yeah. uh, amongst them. So all the writers were like, okay, yeah. um, but there's no drama without conflict. Yeah. So essentially the, the conflict element was written into Deep Space Nine right from the start to deal with that problem then. Well, I think they, they did it in a way so they could keep within Gene's rules of the conflict. So they mm-hmm. base it on a space, an alien space station. We have Starfleet characters, but we have some of the crew are not Starfleet. We have yeah. recurring characters who are on the space station who aren't Starfleet. So that gives them an opportunity, gave them an opportunity to, you know, have some sort of conflict between the characters at times or the characters bring in their own issues that wouldn't have been able to do on TNG because everybody was from the same group essentially. Yeah, cut Uh, from the same cloth. So that brings me to my next question. How does it differ from The Next Generation and other Star Trek in general? I'm going to quote Ron Moore, but he's nailed it really. Like Next Generation is sort of a riff on the original Star Trek TV show. Deep Space Nine is probably as far as you could push it where you've you've taken the Starfleet officers out of the comfortable Starfleet environment. There's a lot more sort of uh, continuing story threads throughout the show. Mm. It deals a lot a lot more with political, religious issues, but also family is very important Absolutely. in that show and like just the connections between people. In Deep Space Nine, you know, you couldn't visit a planet you could visit a planet. They did do that, but like, you know, week in they, they didn't leave that, that story behind and go on to the next one so yeah. much, you know, there was sort of consequences and stayed with them a little bit more because I remember hearing somebody say that it's not like Cisco can't go off and have fun, but Cisco has to make sure that fun doesn't turn up the next week to bite him in the ass. And it's all going on. And it gave them a great opportunity to sort of have everything that's going on in the Alpha Quadrant, you know, sort of to be part of that. It was less about sort of exploring Planet of the Week, more about variety of issues, I guess. Um, yeah. It gave, gave maybe a bit more opportunity for different storytelling. And one, one, one thing you mentioned earlier that I wanted to, to sort of pick you up on, you mentioned religion mm-hmm. in the show. So why was religion so prominent in this show? Okay, so I mean, straight from the get-go, we've got the wormhole, uh, the wormhole aliens. It's sort of given mm-hmm. us the science side of it, but also the religious side of it. When in, in through the eyes of the Bajoran people in, in that show, yeah. so you know that that comes, that thread runs through the show, comes and goes in importance. But it's sort of you know you're taking a main character who has a journey from the start to the end. It's that uh, great sci-fi thing where we are to- you might be talking about a religion or talking about issues that might may or may not be relevant today in different religions but presenting them in a different <laughs> way so you know it, it's given a fresh take on it uh, and have given it a fresh like sort of way to look at it without sort of offending yeah. anyone or you know um, you've got people who are uh, you've got 
sort of politics inter interwoven with religion you know in, in terms of what's going on what affects our characters in the day-to-day -day, what's what are their troubles what's going on where they are sort of living at that time yeah because if we said about they can't go away and leave those troubles f to be dealt with they are sort of woven into what's going on in the local area absolutely no that was brilliant thank you very much listen steph it's mm -hmm. always lovely to hear from you mm -hmm. do you have anything you'd like to plug we have a local store in kidderminster called geek retreat and we're working very hard to create a really great safe place for people to come and hang out and game and if they just want to chill out and have a coffee or play a board game that's all good i honestly cannot wait until i can visit because i'm gonna sit there i'm gonna have a milkshake and i'm gonna play star trek Catan with you because that sounds like that, my ideal afternoon that would be awesome <laughs> it really would <laughs> thanks yeah. buddy cheers mate so, Phil, that was Steph. What do you think? Man knows so much about Star Trek. I want to be in his Geek Retreat Cafe. Also, drinking milkshake. Also playing yeah. Settlers of Catan. Uh, but yeah, no, it's really nice to just uh, hear his take on it, especially for someone who's just so invested in the series as well and in the sort of the lore yeah. of it and the, just the, the way the society works there as well. Like, he's got such deep knowledge and just a pleasure to listen to him talk about it. Absolutely. I played uh, Star Trek Settlers of Catan with uh, my wife's family and Ooh. my father-in-law, who I love deeply, kept on referring to Bajor as Badger and, oh, I nearly flipped the table. <laughs> oh no, it's, it's the Badgers and the Kardashians. <laughs> anyway, now it's time for <gasps> Finding the Faith in the Film. <laughs> Fantastic. There are so many different things that we could look at in with regards to this show. I mean, the fact that Benjamin Sisko comes from a secular society, he gets made into a religious icon for a religion that he doesn't actually believe in, and yet somehow manages to be completely respectful of everybody's religious beliefs, I think is fantastic. And frankly, there's a few Star Trek fans out there who really could do with taking note of that nonsense, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I like the fact that Benjamin Sisko is like yeah. he, he, he doubts himself but he's so respectful at every single mm -hmm. point from what I've seen yeah. he just seems like a really well measured and, and considerate sort of like you know commander and captain well he's also uh, one of my role models for, for being a dad you can be sort of strong and you can be masculine but you can also put your arm around your kid and tell them that you love them you know and that sort yeah. of thing so he's, he's a fantastic example of what it means to be a man I think so we're going to focus on two episodes the first one is is season three's Destiny, where the crew are joined by three Cardassian scientists to explore something happening in the wormhole. But it also seems to be consistent that a Bajoran prophecy is coming true and Cisco is put in it in an uncomfortable situation when having to deal with that. You watched that episode recently, didn't you? Yeah, I quite liked it. I liked the conflict in it. Obviously, it talked a lot about faith and it talked a lot about where does responsibility come into place when it comes to dealing with somebody else's faith and somebody else's sort of beliefs yeah. but also as well it had a lot of grounding in like a, a logical scientific explanation as well which is something that star trek does so well and i just like the fact that they were able to sort of blend those things together in this episode i thought that was just great writing and i really enjoyed yeah, I, it i thought it was intriguing i love that my favorite scene is uh in somebody's quarters on the defiant when cisco is talking to major kira and she's trying to convince him to to stop the mission because she's seen what's the sword of stars which is this sort of comet trail mm -hmm. that looks like a like a sword and it's prophesied 
And he's saying, well, look, I'm Starfleet. If I have to cancel this mission, it needs to have a good reason. And the line she says, I love it, I wrote it down. She says, okay, well, you could just say to them, uh, the prophets, the aliens who live in the wormhole, as you call them, exist outside of linear time. They know the past, present and future. It seems perfectly reasonable that they could have communicated their knowledge of the future to a Bajoran named Tracor. He wrote down that knowledge in the form of a prophecy. And now, 3,000 years later, we're seeing these events unfold. I found that absolutely really fascinating because what we've got here is a religious event being described in scientific jargon, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought that was fascinating that somebody wanted to try and do that. That's exactly that's exactly the scene um, I was thinking of when I gave my explanation a second ago. Like, it, I think that's quite logical. In fact, I would even go as far to say it's quite Starfleet. And I just, they're just mm. thinking like, yes delicious thank you very good yeah and obviously the fun thing about star trek in general is it has elements of christianity or throughout it or elements of the supernatural throughout Mm. it and christianity as a meta-narrative simply just puts all those elements in one place so i heard that (laughs) bit that major kira said and i thought i'd have a go at writing it myself you know okay so uh let me see if i can get this if i can get this right uh over three thousand years ago a non-corporeal omnipresent being who identified himself to moses as yahweh took credit for creating life on this planet seeing that negative qualities in the human condition could lead to ruin for not just individuals but also the species as a whole he left them with a series of guidelines on how to avoid destruction and although due to his own non-linear understanding of time he knew that humanity were ultimately flawed he loved them anyway because he saw them as his children how does that sound that's really good but it's <laughs> it's one of those things it's almost like explain like i'm five do you know what i mean like ex- yeah you know it's like that that subreddit it's like explain like i'm five how did god convince moses that he was god and to also <laughs> you know give out these 10 guidelines yeah. that everyone should follow I, I yeah no i really like it it's creates an access point for yeah. people who do want to understand religion a bit better even if they don't believe but if they just want to understand mm-hmm. these kinds of shows are brilliant for that because they just give you yeah. a they give you an in that you might not have in in a, in a sense that you may never have um, noticed before or may never have thought of before i enjoyed it because the linguist in me knows that you sometimes have to change register for certain scenarios and certain situations mm-hmm. you kind of have to kind of code switch if you like and you know that the the one of the sort of founding principles of this podcast is to avoid christianese you know we're mm-hmm. we're not going to talk about i felt called to do x or when i you know when i had a prophecy about blah 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 i try to make this as accessible to people as possible and that's one of the things i yeah, really, really enjoyed about that obviously the 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 danger is is that if you start to mix the science fiction with the religious belief then you pretty much end up with Ron L. Hubbard creating his own church based on just a load of sci-fi ideas that he had. Yeah, and I mean... Then if you're not careful, you get Scientology. We're all seeing how that's panning out, and it's not going great. <clears throat> Which leads me on to the next thing I want to talk about, and the, the main thing I've been thinking about, really, on this one. The next one I want to talk about is an episode in Season 7 called Covenant, and in it, Major Kira is kidnapped and taken to uh, Empoknor, which is basically the same state station as Deep Space Nine but it's been abandoned or the same type of station as Deep Space Nine but it's been abandoned which is great because it means you don't need to build any sets any new sets you can just <laughs> reuse the old ones and just throw up some stuff here and there you're totally fine you know let's put up some, li- li- let's let's put up some religious stuff here we'll have some like yeah. you know some Cardassian stuff here some Bajoran stuff here it's fine and in the episode Gul Dukat 
has now decided that he is like the emissary for the Par Wraiths, who are like the evil wormhole aliens. They're like the evil prophets. And he's basically developed this little cult of Bajoran believers who are willing to follow him and do anything that he says rather uncritically. And we have, at the end, a scene where they're about to commit mass suicide, and we're led to believe that he's he's sort of structured it in such a way that his pill is a placebo, so he'll take it and he'll survive, but everybody else will die. What did you think of that episode? It was an interesting way to sort of have a little bit of a look into how cults and religion differ, because there are so many similarities, but cults just mm. seem so severe, and, and I really feel that was illustrated quite yeah. well. Like, it's, it's severe to the point where you'd have to be of a very weak state to be sort of drawn into it, Yeah, if that makes sense. And I, and I feel like that's what Guldekat did in that episode. He... He, he saw a group of people that he, he, he could manipulate and used it to his own gain. Although he also believed he was like a prophet or like a, a vessel in himself. There was a lot to unpack, basically. You're absolutely right. One of the interesting things you mentioned there was about people who are uh, people being weak. And the, this seems to be a thing that people think, oh, I could never join a cult because I'm not gullible, you know, or I'm too smart for that. Whereas a lot of the cults you'll find, you'll have some of the most intelligent people in them. I did a little bit of looking into this, and the main people who are recruited for cults are often people who are dealing with some kind of personal or professional loss, mm. or people who have just moved to an area recently and don't have their, their support system. And often they are recruited by friends or, or family members, making it that much harder to, to say no, you know? Yeah. So I think when we say weak, I think maybe another word to use would be vulnerable instead, because we can I all think, be vulnerable yeah, at some I th- point, I th- and that I think, makes us... I think I meant more weakened than, than weak-minded, like, you know, everything mm. like that. I, like, yeah. if you've been affected by something and it is it's weakened or made your state of mind more vulnerable, as it were, I feel like that's probably more yeah. appropriate. Like I say, there's, there's intelligent people people out there who are drawn to cults as well as people who are maybe not as intelligent not to say that they're any less exactly. sort of like you know they've, they've got any less worth than each other i feel as though yeah. if you're if you're feeling like you're you're missing something in your life community wise a cult can be something that you could get drawn into really easily so absolutely now the standard definition of a cult is a relatively small group of people having religious beliefs or practices regarded by others as strange or as imposing excessive control over members. Mm. So, like, we're all familiar with the traditional and the more extreme versions of what a cult is. Um, for me, the first thing that comes to mind when I think about this is, like, the Jonestown Massacre yep. or the Heaven's Gate mass suicides in 1997, where all these people sort of killed themselves on the belief that there was a starship hiding behind a comet waiting to sort of take them up or most recently we had the the nexium brandings where women were sort of being branded with a guy with the cult leader's initials to sort of show that they were part of it in, in essence yeah. you know what it's, i'm interested in this it's really heavy and of course when you've got to those extreme things it's very easy to see oh that is a cult i can tell <laughs> because they're killing themselves you know yeah that's, that's dead easy big cult. what i'm interested Massive in is cult. are there other cults that are perhaps more subtle versions and that's what i wanted to look at here so i think these days we can expand the definition of a cult to non-religious organizations ones that that don't necessarily have god at the or a god at the center of it so there are various different signs that you are in a cult and i'd urge you to seek them out the ones that i've picked are deliberately broad enough to include non-religious examples 
Okay. okay. The first thing I think every cult has to have is a charismatic leader with all the power focused on them. You know, yes. if we took something like uh, QAnon, which I think has essentially turned itself into into a cult, Donald Trump is absolutely at the center of that. Uh, cult of personality where everything he says and everything he does is right everything he does is excusable you with me yeah of course like everything that he does it's like well he's saying it so so it must be right but some other people outside they're just like are you are you sure yeah another thing that i think you can see is a hierarchical structure that doesn't allow for criticism or meaningful discourse that the it's like the flow of information can only go one way and it goes from the leader down to the followers if you like there's a real discouragement of critical thinking in it absolutely and one thing i i think that's that's really important in all cults that I've seen is that at the centre of it there's got to be a cause that will justify extreme lengths to achieve that goal. Yeah, of course. Like, it can either be about self-improvement or it can be about saving the children, whatever. You rarely get cults that are based around selling coffee. Yeah, it's usually something quite um, life-affirming. Something that Mm -hmm. is changing something that's like at your core or at the core of society that's that's sort of where the cult is focused on another aspect i thought was a heavy emphasis on extreme signs of loyalty from the people that are following it and that could be either sort of finances work or 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 other other things you know i'd die Um, for this person i'd give all my savings for this person that kind of thing you know i mean basically yeah. yeah on the on the more extreme end we then start talking about sexual exploitation but like I say, I don't think you even need to go that far for it to be a, a severe problem. And the the last thing I wanted uh, that I thought was was important was a strong discouragement of leaving. You know mm, that that yeah, this hundred percent this small group here they're the ones that have got it right. And if you're if you leave that group, then you're in the wrong. Yes, I can think of a few examples where that is very much apparent, and um, it's it's frightening because people that are in this sort of situation they are led to believe that the only path is their path and any other path will lead to death, destruction, mm-hmm. chaos and, you know, debauchery. Well, it's just not fair at the end of the day because that's it's simply untrue. So what I wanted to talk about was the idea of, like I say, whether cults have to be religious or not. And do you know what the first thing I thought that I picked on? Uh, uh, the first <laughs> cult that came to mind for me. I cannot wait to hear this, to be honest. Okay. Have you heard of CrossFit? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard so, of CrossFit, yeah. <laughs> I spoke with, with Griff, a personal trainer friend of mine, and he, he had a joke, like, the first rule of CrossFit is you've always got to talk about CrossFit, oh, you know? God. And whilst it might not be strictly, strictly a cult, it, does, it has certain um, things. <laughs> I spoke to my friend Anne, who is by far one of the smartest people I know and she was she was a member of, of a CrossFit gym or CrossFit box for quite some time and uh, one of the things I said to her was a uh, quick question have you ever heard anyone compare CrossFit to a cult and she went yep me <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
Amazing. And uh, I said, you know, I I wonder whether it fit the criteria. And she said, I think it was arguably a cult when Greg Glassman was in charge. Charismatic leader, special language, induction into new ways, promises life transformation, takes over life and takes lots of money. And with Greg gone, there's no charismatic leader. And the fun thing she said was, it came as part of a discussion with a fellow Christian on how it was easier and more successful to invite friends to CrossFit than to church, possibly because the evidence of changed life was more obvious, and equally sadly, a good CrossFit community was more supportive than many churches. However, it did in Glassman's time tick the spot the cult boxes, although I wouldn't call it an actual <laughs> cult. I totally see it. It is... Mm. It's got it's got culty tendencies, hasn't it? You know, it's it's got some yeah. cultiness, if that is a term. Another another one that is is rife for this sort of thing is. Uh, have you ever heard the term NGO? It does ring a bell, but I couldn't so, tell you what it means. Okay, so an NGO stands for non-governmental organization. A lot right. of the time, what that usually means for us is just charities, organizations that work in the charitable sector who are trying to do good in some way, shape, or form, who mm-hmm. uh, are not directly sp- sponsored by the government. You with me? Yeah, I get you. So these often have the the good cause thing that I'm talking about because if you're trying to do something that is uh, helping children in Africa or or helping people to do X, Y, or Z, and it's definitely a good cause, then it's easier to justify making people show those extreme signs of loyalty and going to extreme lengths. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of an ends justify the means things, I suppose. At the end of the day, we're saving starving children. We did have to kill a few people to get there. Oh, we did have to steal these people's money. (laughs) But hey, the kids survived. Do you know, it's... it's, (laughs) Maybe that was a little extreme, but you see my point. <laughs> I do see where, where you're going for. So um, the the example that comes to mind is a friend of mine used to work for a charity that was like a an anti-trafficking charity, you know? So it was fighting mm. against modern slavery. Yeah. So it had the thing of ticking all the, all the main boxes. It had the charismatic leader. Mm-hmm. It had a structure that didn't really give uh, any any room for sort of complaints so for example the boss's wife was the head of hr you know <laughs> so you can't yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> and obviously you've got young idealistic people who want to join this organization because they want to do something about this thing that they're passionate about you know but then they're they're expected to sort of work extremely long hours they're expected to sort of go above and beyond and that's that sort of always doing more than you expect to do becomes kind of fetishized do you know what i mean I know exactly what you mean. That sounds exactly like hospitality. <laughs> like yeah. the amount of times that I've yeah. been subject to that in my working life, just in general, because mm-hmm. they, they sort of nurture that sort of attitude so that they can get more out of their yeah. staff for less pay. And it's wrong because it's a hard job. Yeah. And one, we shouldn't be working that many hours and we should just all be getting paid more. Yeah. But the key difference there is that you don't have the goal, the mission statement that kind of keeps you there. Do you know what I mean? You're like, yeah, okay, totally. well, I can I can pour pints somewhere else where they treat me a bit better, you know? This sense that of of doing something good starts to become part of your identity and then your job starts to take over who you are. And then the the thing about this good cause is that it starts to cover a multitude of sins. Yeah. So if we take the like the charismatic leader aspect you say well i didn't like him when he the way he treated me or the way he said this or how he talks to that person but then again he is trying to end slavery 
So <laughs> it's one of them things that it's like, yeah, maybe, but you also shouldn't have done that. And you should have some respect yeah. for your individuality and yourself, you know? Yeah. It starts to become a thing where it gives somebody a license to mistreat people because of what their, their goal is, their, their end goal at the, the end. Do you see what it, I mean? Yeah. You know, I totally understand that. I just think it's abhorrent to be honest. I find it a very frustrating concept that people do that. Yeah. And I was thinking about this. It occurred to me the more I was writing about this, the more I thought, flipping heck, this is schools. <laughs> think it, if you think it through, like every every sort of person gets recruited there. There's they they have to see their their competitors. They have to work hard to be to become a part of it. And then when they get there, they're expected to go above and beyond. You're expected to know the special educational needs or the educational needs of every child in every class. You're expected to differentiate for every child at all times. You're expected to be thinking about create about showing meaningful learning for every single lesson, every time. So that if somebody walks in, they can see you doing this, that, and the other. And the amount that is asked of teachers for the children is ridiculous. It's like the adverts that you see on television for uh, that are recruiting for people to get into teaching jobs, but that are put <laughs> out by the government. They always sort of like put it across as being like this is uh, a vocational position this is something that is there for the betterment of society it's good for you it's good for the kids they don't talk about the crippling hours they don't talk about the pay that isn't worth it they 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 omit all of that because that's obviously very very much disheartening for anybody who wants to get to teaching yeah and there's a real strong discouragement of leaving i mean first of all if you want to quit you've got to put in like effectively three months notice you know you have to give terms notice before you leave but also there's this idea that oh you couldn't hack it you know and it's like no it's not that I couldn't hack it it's because I was expected to put my dreams and my life on hold in order for somebody else to show that they had led this school to get higher grades so that they could get a headship somewhere else you know I really really hate that that Mm. sort of notion of oh oh you couldn't hack it Oh, you, you're just giving up, eh? It's like, no, no, no. What I'm doing is I'm putting uh, myself first, and you yeah. should probably try it yourself too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's ridiculous. Well, as a teacher, your main learning resource is yourself. And if you're not looking after yourself, then it really doesn't matter whether your resources are colour-coordinated or anything like that. You you have to put yourself first in these things, you know? 100%. Obviously, we're a, we're a God-in-film podcast, so we probably should talk about how this relates to, to sort of churches, because yeah, true. <laughs> I've I've had two very conflicting experiences. Of this I've been in a church that felt like a cult, and I've been in a church that felt nothing like a cult. You know, the church I got saved in back in Bangor had a lot of these kind of elements that we we talked about. It had the character charismatic leader with all the power focused on them it had a hierarchical structure that didn't allow for criticism or meaningful discourse the leader of that church uh you met her you interviewed her we won't use her name oh yeah i remember i remember you yeah normally for a church leader for a pastor to be running a church they will have to sort of answer to either a governing body or like a higher organization you with me yeah but the way that the the Pentecostal uh, organization sets up churches, they kind of set up churches and then they kind of let them kind of sink or swim. They give them very little oversight. And for this church leader, let's just call her Karen for the moment. That's not her name. It's nothing close to her name. But for most church leaders, they would have like a, a, a 
governing body or deacons or something like that yeah. to uh, answer to. You with me? Yeah, of course. So this church leader, uh, our Karen, she appointed that governing body herself. See, that's that's alarm bells. So right all, there, the pe- all the people who are meant to have be a check and a balance on everything she does were people that she put in the position herself. Yeah, that's not really how any of that works, really. It's not really how my understanding of the church works. <laughs> because you're going to pick people who won't challenge you. You're going to pick people who won't give you, who won't say, no, that was out of line and you shouldn't have done that. It, you know? You're going to pick yes people because you want exactly you want to solidify your position of power if you have a position of power or yeah. authority. And of course, in any church, in every church, you have a cause that will justify extreme measures to achieve that goal. We obviously want people to become Christians because if you believe what we believe, then we want you to know God Mm -hmm. because the other option is not favourable to say the least. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, no, I totally understand. So because of that, she felt like she was able to say to people that if you really love God, you should sell your house to to sort of give money to the church, you know? There was one time where she said that if you're not coming to church on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening, then you're cheating God. You with me? I'm going to be honest, right? Why don't she sell her house? Do you know what I mean? Like, just sell your own bloody house. Don't ask other people to sell their houses. That's I've got um I've got stronger words that I won't be using, but um, yeah, yeah, no, that's that's really angry. And there was a so there was a heavy emphasis on on extreme signs of loyalty that uh, that you would be coming morning and evening, and you'd also be going to the prayer meetings on Friday mornings, and that you'd be helping out with the youth leader or all this sort of stuff, you know. There was also a strong discouragement of leaving. Because, like, as as Christians, we believe that you can't be a good Christian on your own. You know, you've got to have... You've got to be able to talk to people and you've got to be part of a team. So we don't want you to leave church in general. But that said, if you leave our church and go to another church, that's okay. You know, we're yeah. fine with it. This, this church had a strong belief that they were the only ones who were really following God. They were the only ones that were... The phrase that you hear is on fire for God. And the other ones were like sort of almost like dead churches, that sort of thing. On fire for God. That's, that's a regular phrase, the there's, idea that you fill passion with. Uh... Th- there's very little I'd be on fire for. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Just in general. That's, that's a good now phrase. Now that I say it out loud, it does sound a little bit weird. It sounds a little bit like but... immolation is what it sounds like. <laughs> You know what I mean? Just makes you think of the front cover of Rage Against the Machine's first album. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As I say, there are certain aspects where, where cults and, and just church in general will have some things in common. Mm-hmm. So if you're part of a church, you are expected to contribute financially. But the way somebody said to me that to me was like, well, if you're part of a family, you'd be expected to do the dishes sometime, you know, every so often, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, so, I get that. If you think what they're doing is worthwhile, then you need to contribute something to it. So you've got to do something to keep the lights on. But the the key difference being, rather than say, you need to give this much or you need to give everything, the phrase that we have in our church is joyful givers, Mm -hmm. that God wants joyful givers. He wants people who are happy to, to give. So the way that manifested for me was pick an amount in your head that you're going to be happy to give and nobody's checking up on me to see if I'm doing it. Nobody's saying oh, it should be this or it should be that. Nobody even really talks about it that much, you know? And if I'm if I'm struggling 
as I have done financially in the past, and I needed to save money. I've stopped the my direct debit going out there, and nobody said anything. No one's treated me differently or anything like that. No, you know? it, that's the thing, though. Is at the end of the day, it's it's like family. You look out for them. You you try and take care of them, whether that's financially or other. But it's not mm-hmm. an expectation. It's just. If you can, then do. But if you can't, then don't worry about it because we'll love you all the same. Absolutely. And in terms of a hierarchical structure, the idea that it all kind of all comes to to sort of one one person. Mm -hmm. So we do have a we do have a senior leader, but in terms of like the organizational structure, if you want something doing, he's almost like the last person to come to, you know? (laughs) Because I thought if I wanted to do something in church that you'd have to sort of like take it to a committee or a leadership group or something and they would sort of have to give you like a, almost like a papal seal of approval. But <laughs> what I found was that if I wanted to do something in the church, I just talked to my mate Sue who kind of is like the office manager and if she says, yeah, I reckon that's probably fine, that's pretty much as close to a papal seal of approval as you're going to get, you know? That's, I mean, that's, like, that's kind of all if, you need, you know what I mean? Like, I, I come back to the restaurant yeah. analogy just just for a moment like but mm-hmm. when you're when you're a manager in like a restaurant yeah. or in a bar or whatever you're the person who's helping everyone else you're not the overlord you're yeah. like everybody's sort of like you know bus boy at the end of the day you're doing everything for everyone else and i feel like yeah. that's sort of the way it should be you should be everyone's leaning post and everyone's support it's uh, like that it's, it's sort of that thing that the last shall be first and the first should be last all that that sort of thing and and the fact that like jesus modeled this by sort of he wasn't afraid to do the dirty jobs you know he wasn't afraid to sort of get his get his hands dirty and wash people's feet which would have been sweaty and dusty and disgusting and all the rest of it and if you've got a lead who feels like they're too good for that sort of thing then you probably want to stay well away from them i've met many of them and i distance yeah. myself accordingly and in terms of our like i say in terms of a hierarchical structure we do have a we have a senior leader we have an associate pastor we have an operations manager we have an eldership team we have a group of trustees and it's this weird system of checks and balances all the way going through <laughs> like there's a point where i'm not entirely 100 sure who my boss is so Sometimes because <laughs> you've got responsibility for this, so I've got to talk to you about this, and then you've got that, and I really enjoy the messiness of it. Do you know what I mean? I feel like you need like a like some kind of stem and leaf diagram or something, you know, just to just yeah. to figure out, you know, like a family tree almost, like just to try to figure yeah. out who the hell I speak to for this and who do I speak to for this, you know? It is a very uh, flat organizational structure, is the way I would I would put it, you know. Yeah, and I, I think that works. I I absolutely love that about it. That round rounds up. Our quite rambling finding the faith in the film <laughs> section my sincerest apologies if that wasn't usually the same kind of absolutely clinical bible references all around and the rest of it now phil i have a bone to pick with you oh goodness what because have I done now? <laughs> <laughs> we've not had a review as such but we did have a message sent to us in the uh, off on um, facebook okay. via a guy called elliot Rowe, and okay. this was sent on the 22nd of june that you responded to and i knew nothing about so i mean you know what i'm like i'm so desperate and begging for validation that <laughs> anything there it's like oh yes yes I- please give me some crumbs that somebody's paying attention 
in my defence, I genuinely thought you may have seen it. I, I just didn't think to mention it. I'm sorry. <laughs> my apologies. I'll keep, I'll keep that in mind in future. So I'm going to read out what Elliot said. You guys make a brilliant podcast. A few months ago, I was fancying an Indiana Jones podcast to listen to, and so typed that into Apple Podcasts, and your episode about it came up, and I thought, well, this is just perfect. As a Christian and fellow lover of film myself, this is absolutely perfect, and I've even pointed the youth at our church to listen to it, as they have asked about how to love fancy well whilst being a Christian. I lived in Stockport and so found it hilarious when Phil pointed out that somewhere being not of the Lord reminded him of Stockport. <laughs> you both do a brilliant job. Great to see such good friends having a laugh. Oh, so that I rem- was from I- Elliot Rowe and... I remember that one now, and thank you so much, Elliot. It really made me smile. It really did. Thank you, Elliot. That absolutely made our day. Listen, guys, thank you so much for joining us once again. We love that you're ready to listen to us ramble on about stuff. Our next episode is going to be on Buffy and Angel, and we hope to see you then. In the meantime, Phil, have you had a good time? Oh, I love talking about cults, (laughs) so I had a great time. Me too. Okay, guys, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Gordon Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee, who also did the waffle edit. Gordon Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review, unless it's a one star, in which case, record your comments onto an isolinear rod as a subspace message could be picked up by the Dominion. Take the Rio Grande runabout to Empagnor's last known location. Dock up a pylon too, but do not enter the station. Just leave the rod in the airlock and Phil will get back to you when he's next in the sector. Giles out.